Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm the Autumn Crafter. Joining me is Liz, the Varsha Wright. Making monsoons is a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Our book this month is Wintersmith, the story that takes the supernatural romance trope and asks, Isn't this all a little creepy? <laughs> I would say it's about time, but unfortunately this came out way before most of the other books I've read with this trope in it. <laughs> I was excited to read another Tiffany Aching book because I just find her character really fun. Um, and as we're kind of starting to like really wind down with the series, I find these ones just are very like comforting and familiar despite the fact I've never read them before. But this one is like the Tiffany Aching books in particular just do kind of take me back to being a teenager in a weird way. And so I don't know. It's really interesting. So let's move right along to the trivia section. Originally published on September 26th, 2006 and coming at 80,000 words, Wintersmith is the 35th Discworld novel and third in the Tiffany Aching series. The titular character is a personification of winter, which is a common trend in the mythology of cultures from temperate climates. Of all the seasons, winter seems to be the one most commonly imagined as a person. Note that the wintersmith is a separate entity from both Jack Frost and the Hogfather, although their duties seem to overlap. The word boffo, which in the story is the name of a joke shop, is also a word for successful, especially as it applies to theatrical productions, as in a boffo performance. The rhyme about the components of a man does not appear to have historical origins, although one could speculate about it being inspired by a scene from Full Metal Alchemist. Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> we can hope. In 2007, Wintersmith was nominated for the Mythopoeic Fantasy Award for Children's Literature and won the Locus Award for Best Young Adult Book. The audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts 7 hours and 55 minutes. At the time of recording, the story has not yet been officially adapted for stage or screen, but the folk rock band Steel Ice Span collaborated with Pratchett to produce a concept album, which was released in October 2013. And I know what I'm doing after we finish recording. <laughs> and who knows, maybe eventually like, we'll cover that on the show. <laughs> yeah, bonus content. We open in the springtime, where a horrible snowstorm is encroaching over the pastoral barony known as the Chalk. This weather is causing much consternation for the Chalk's resident witch, Tiffany Aching, because she seems to know exactly who is causing it. It's an unusual story structure for a Discworld book. We don't tend to get many flash-forwards. Yeah, it definitely caught me off guard a little bit. And I definitely thought uh, Pratchett was taking the advice, you know, figure out where the point of your story starts and, like, chop as much off the front of that as possible. Like, really to heart here. I also feel like the reason why it's structured this way is so that the reader understands throughout the story that the Wintersmith is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And just like the more romantic scenes that take place between now and then have this undercurrent of menace because of it. Yeah, I think that definitely helps, especially because he's not like super present in most of the book. Like he gets talked about, but he's not physically there. And so I think it helps, especially with 
modern sensibilities being the way they are about how romance in YA literature is. It definitely helps mm-hmm. to like make him seem dangerous. But also, he should be part of the background in some respects, right? Because he he is the weather. <laughs> yeah, he's always there, but in a very like vague sense. <laughs> From there, the story jumps back to the prior autumn, where Tiffany is visiting the senior witch, Granny Weatherwax. During their visit, Granny shows off one of her favorite bits of magic, the power to move things around. Not like telekinesis, but properties such as heat. During this visit, Tiffany also gifts Granny a small white kitten, which Granny pretends to reject. (laughs) This feels very in character for Granny, and it's very endearing. (laughs) After their visit, Tiffany returns to the cottage of Miss Treason, where she is studying witchcraft. Miss Treason, who is venerable enough that she still thinks of Granny Weatherwax as the Weatherwax girl, is a (laughs) blind crone who serves as her community's justice system. Justice being blind and all. The townspeople are terrified of Miss Treason and have all sorts of rumors about her. But we soon learn that Tiffany knows her much more important secret. Miss Treason's a really fun character, especially because she feels very, like witchy in the disc world sense while being entirely new i think a large part of that is her use of borrowing as like a big thing because mm-hmm. that's how she sees and i think also hears the world around her yeah i think you're right i believe uh, one of our colleagues on like a different discord podcast either a pratt chat or the death of podcasts i don't remember mm-hmm. they were talking about how like, borrowing is this thing that witches in the Discworld have been able to do since the beginning. And, like, this is just a new, interesting way of doing it. Mm-hmm. It's, like, impressive that they're still coming up with, like, innovations. Yeah. It's, like, such a fun world-building thing to do because you have this thing you've already introduced, but you're finding new ways to, like, contextualize it. Uh, one small point I wanted to mention, and... Apologies to anyone who skipped Witches Abroad, but in that book, we learned how Granny has a twin sister, Lily, and part of me wishes that Miss Treason had mentioned what the two of them were like as children. Yeah, that would have been really fun, especially because we don't necessarily get to learn a lot about Lily in Witches Abroad. Well, then again, we, we don't really learn much about Granny either. Yeah, that's true. Soon enough, Miss Treason brings Tiffany to a special event, the Dark Morris Dance. Where normal Morris dancing is about celebrating the start of summer, this is about welcoming the winter. We didn't mention it at the time, but the Dark Morris dance was talked about briefly in one of the earlier books, Reaper Man. There are several groups of people around the world who dance it for real, including the recently traditional fictional Morris team, (laughs) who have been performing it every Halloween since 2001 in Somerville, Massachusetts, aka the place where I live. (laughs) So, you know, shout out to Jeremy Kessler and all the dancers, most of whom are anonymous. I assume for our protection. (laughs) Yeah, that feels appropriate. It feels like them being superheroes almost. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, I don't know if it's in all of the books, but my version of the book, um, at the very end, there's a little note from Terry about how he was doing like a book tour and then came across a place where they did the Dark Morris dance and how he found it just so like deeply unsettling. I mean, you would, right? Like, Mm -hmm. 
I would compare it kind of to like how Tolkien saw some people getting tattoos of just like the inscription on the one ring. Because like mm-hmm. that's a thing that is created to be a little bit unsettling and evil. Yeah. Especially with how like I've never like seen a more stance in real life. That's not a thing people do here. But the more stance is a thing to celebrate the like spring and summer and it's this joyous and like exuberant thing. And then this dark more stance is just like very somber and kind of creepy it's like a very wonderful like inverse to imagine although some people do find regular morris dancing kind of creepy (laughs) there's a lot of bells strapped to people (laughs) yeah i guess at this point bells are in my life are mostly in the context of cats so (laughs) (laughs) so tiffany gets caught up in the emotions surrounding the dance and despite mistress and having warned her against it winds up joining in For a moment, it's incredibly beautiful, until the two people at the center of the event notice her presence. In the confusion, she is accidentally trampled and knocked unconscious. It's mentioned, I think, a little bit later on why Tiffany just got caught up in the Dark Morris dance. It's because Mm -hmm. it is part of just like the seasons and the world and the land, and it's been established in previous Tiffany books that she has this deep connection to her home country, the Jock. Mm-hmm. It's in her bones, more or less. And so that's where the dancing happens as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the Wintersmith is the like embodiment of winter and Tiffany is kind of the like human embodiment of the Jock. So the land waking and going back to sleep is more tangible to her than I think it is just to the normal people there. One of the other dancers brings Tiffany back to Miss Treason's cottage, where they are soon joined by the Knack McFeagle, the belligerent band of pixies that have assisted Tiffany in previous books. Miss Treason manages to impress and terrify the Feagles by speaking to them in their own brand of Scots, and she explains that because Tiffany joined the dance, something which nobody else has apparently ever done before, she has gotten the attention of the very spirit of the season, the Wintersmith. Mm-hmm. It's been said before in the series that human beings are innately curious and we have a tendency to ignore warnings of danger and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, given that this dance has been happening every year for presumably centuries, it strikes me as odd that nobody has ever joined in the way Tiffany did. Yeah, <laughs> it seems just very uh, against the nature of people. Although maybe there's something to be said that because Tiffany has such a deep connection to the land that she was unfortunately just the very wrong person to get caught up in it. I buy that. When Tiffany wakes up, Miss Treason badgers her about failing to follow instructions. Upset with her and herself, Tiffany storms out of the cottage, where she meets the wintersmith again, and he returns a personal item to her, a silver necklace that she had been given by her not-boyfriend, Roland, the son of the Baron of the Chalk. The necklace is so cold that it actually burns Tiffany's hand, and her yelp of surprise scares the wintersmith away. Yeah, like, throughout the book, Tiffany returns to this burn on her hand multiple times whenever she's thinking about the wintersmith. I think it does help to, like, accentuate the fact that, you know, he's dangerous just by the very nature of being the embodiment of winter. Because winter can get, like, deathly cold and dangerous. And even though he did a nice thing, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily nice. 
Around here is also where we meet Horus, who is an animated wheel of cheese. Moving on. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I think he exists largely because Terry Pratchett loves having those side characters who don't actually talk, but have big personalities. Yeah, it definitely seems like Horus was like a fun idea. And, but does it like really do anything for the book? I think he disappears like halfway through. Yeah, he really does. Although, actually, he joins the Mac McFeagle clan. <laughs> <laughs> so, as if all that wasn't enough, Miss Treason gets some bad news. She's about to die. So, Tiffany goes to make preparations for what the magically inclined tend to refer to as a going-away party. Basically a funeral while the deceased is still alive and able to give away inherited items in person. None of the townsfolk believe that their witch is going to pass away, although they're all eager to share about some of the weird things she's supposedly done or has. Mm -hmm. Of course, Tiffany knows the truth. Miss Treason's frightful visage is all a carefully cultivated act, designed to make herself seem powerful and scary so that people respect her. In reality, she gets all the skulls and things from Boffo's joke shop, which leads to Tiffany adopting Boffo as her word for what Granny Weatherwax has in the past called headology. Yeah, uh, the idea of witches knowing that they're going to die, I think was like introduced in the very first witches book. It was, I know it was mentioned fairly early on, but it's really interesting to see like how that actually impacts how, you know, they interact with death and how they interact with each other regarding death because yeah, I mean, if you know you're going to die, like, you might as well do something for it and get to enjoy the party instead of letting it happen after. I will say uh, witches and wizards both figured out in advance. Mm -hmm. And at the very latest, it came up in Mort. Yeah, maybe that's where that scene I'm thinking of is from. It's like, I just remember somebody talking to a witch who's about to die. <laughs> we cut away briefly to Roland, who is hiding in the castle. His father is very ill. And since he's not of age to take over as Baron, his two horrible aunts have moved in and are trying to steal as much treasure as they can for themselves. I kind of appreciate that we get to see a little bit more of Roland in this book because he and Tiffany obviously have a relationship, even if they're not exactly defining what that is. I like being able to see how his life is going on and how that impacts their relationship with each other, you know? Because they do find a comfort and community with each other that they can't find in anybody else in the village because of their positions. While Tiffany continues to get tokens of affection from the Wintersmith, including snowflakes shaped like herself and roses made of ice, witches begin to arrive for the going-away party. There is also some discussion about who will take over Miss Treason's cottage when she's gone. The witch, Mrs. Earwig, puts forward her student, Anagramma, while Granny Weatherwax recommends Tiffany. It's ultimately decided that, as the older witch, Anagramma should take the cottage, although Tiffany suspects that she will not be able to handle the messier and more mundane tasks that come with a witch's actual duties. Yeah, we've seen how Miss Earwig's style of magic has worked in theory up to this, uh, throughout the Tiffany Aching books, and so now we have to see how that actually works in practice with a working witch like Anagramma is supposed to be here. Yeah, we met Anagramma in the previous Tiffany Aching book, uh, oh, right. A Hat Full of Sky, 
we'll probably want to discuss a little bit more about how she changes at the end when we get to go over her arc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere, the Wintersmith is trying to find a way to earn Tiffany's affection and decides to make himself human. In searching for the recipe for how to do this, he finds a small group of children singing a rhyme about the things that make a man, and he sets off to acquire all of those items listed as being of comparable quantity, up to and including an iron nail. In the scene where the Wintersmith is talking with the kids, like mm-hmm. there's one kid who's like bundled up almost entirely, <laughs> and I choose to believe that that was not a South Park reference. <laughs> I hope not. I hope it's just the way that people are very protective of very small children in the winter, and so you need to bundle them up so they essentially can't move. <laughs> Back at the cottage, after the party and Miss Treason's burial, Granny Weatherwax explains that Tiffany has to throw away her necklace. It's connected to the Wintersmith now, and he can use it to find her. This is hard for Tiffany to do, since she doesn't own many personal effects, and also it was a gift from someone she cares about, but she still ends up tossing it in the river. Yeah, I think there are a lot of moments in this book that really show how Tiffany is growing up, because... She's uh, quite a few years older than she was in the first Tiffany Aching book. And, like, she just has such a greater understanding of what her place is in the world at this point. And so even though she doesn't want to throw the necklace away, she still does because she recognizes that the consequences of keeping it will bring. And thinking back, like, oh, in the first book, she might not have done that because she didn't quite understand why she would need to do that. Maybe, although... She has always had this extremely practical and analytical attitude and been able to sort of depersonalize herself at least a little bit. I think she definitely just still had streaks of being an actual child in the other books. And here she's definitely a teenager. And those moments in the previous books where she was a child, she did get a little like, I don't know if petulance is the right word, because I think that uh, is ascribing a little bit more like maybe anger to it than I mean, but that, like, I don't want to. More obstinance? Yeah. It soon becomes clear that Tiffany has inherited some of the Summer Lady's power, including the ability to make things grow, which she has no real capacity to control. Also having a hard time is Anagramma, who comes to find Tiffany at Nanny Og's cottage. She's panicking because Mrs. Earwig never actually explained or showed her all the duties of a witch, and now people are expecting her to deliver babies, cure ailments, and stay up all night with the recently dead. Tiffany is tempted to just let Anagramma fail, but realizes that one failed witch will seriously impact the entire profession, and so she rallies a bunch of other junior witches to discreetly teach Anagramma everything that Mrs. Earwig failed to understand. Yeah, I think this is a great moment really showing both Tiffany and Anagramma's character and how their relationship with each other works. It it does a lot with the relatively few number of words it gets. And also, like, really does show at the end of this scene how Anagramma is, like, so fundamentally, like, insecure. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, throughout this scene, but yeah. She is terrified of her smallness in a big world and the Regina George facade that she's Mm -hmm. been putting up is just like a a defense mechanism as it is for anyone with that kind of attitude I assume Mm -hmm. yeah 
like in A Hat Full of Sky, she was just so like, she just acted so above it all regarding everybody else that her here being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Please come help me. It's like, oh, it's a really good moment to make it very clear that she's still just like a scared teenager who doesn't quite get what she's supposed to be doing in the world. Yeah. I think on some level, most, if not all of us, yeah. still feel that way. <laughs> yeah. The montage about Tiffany recruiting the other young witches is fun. And I especially like how one of them points out to Tiffany that Anagramma is envious of her. Which surprises Tiffany because she's been dealing with identity issues and repressed insecurity her, her whole life. Always is this subtle undercurrent in the narration. Yeah. And I think this moment's extra great because... You know, it is hard when you're in a situation to see why somebody may not like you. So having somebody else point out to Tiffany that Anna Grandma is jealous of her because of her power and all the cool things she's done. Like, it, it makes a lot of sense that Tiffany would not be able to see that being too close to it. So the Wintersmith finally completes his human body and finds Tiffany at Miss Treason's old cottage. There, Anagramma, operating under the assumption that the Wintersmith is attacking Tiffany, throws fireballs at him until he goes away. Yeah, and it's especially great because even though Anagramma and Tiffany have really acted like they don't like each other up to this point, but have been at least fairly polite to each other, you're like, this is a moment where Anagramma does kind of like show where she's at. Like, she'll stand by Tiffany in a very scary situation, like no questions asked. Back in Nanny Og's cottage, Granny instructs the Knack McFeagles that the Wintersmith's counterpart, the Summer Lady, will need to be rescued from the underworld by a hero. And that can't be a Feagle, since they aren't afraid of danger, and a proper hero has to overcome their fear. Yeah, this is a, a good moment to bring back the running theme through the Discworld books, where stories have power, so this needs to follow a story. Although, like, the whole thing about courage, meaning the ability to do what you need to do, even if you're afraid. I'm reminded of a parable about, like, a, a rich man wanted to build an orphanage and then realized that he was just doing it because he wanted to be seen as an important person. And the person he was talking to about that said, who cares? Build the orphanage anyway. Mm -hmm. It's like... I think you can do good things without always having to have the perfect reason for doing them, you know? Yeah, like a good thing at the end of the day is a good thing, regardless of the intentions it took to get there. Yeah. Tiffany finally returns to the chalk, where she feels ready to become the more or less official witch of the land, beginning with the chores on her family's farm. <laughs> However, barely two days after she comes back, she's cleaning a pike that her little brother Wentworth caught for dinner. And what should be inside it but the silver necklace she tossed away? When she touches it, the Wintersmith finds her, and snow begins to fall. Yeah, this moment definitely put things together in my brain, and where it was like, okay, things are going to get, like, really real now. Up at the castle, the Feagles have decided that Roland should be the hero that Greddy Weatherwax ordered them to find, and they help him learn swordplay beyond the imaginary fencing he sometimes does in the mirror. <laughs> Which is perfectly natural for a growing young boy. Yeah. Nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honestly surprised that there wasn't more of a masturbation joke in there. I think if Nanny <laughs> Og had been present in that scene, there would have been. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think the book would have moved forward anymore if Nanny Og was there. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, we have caught up with this scene from the beginning of the book. Tiffany and the other people of the Chalk built a fire to ward off the Wintersmith, but it goes out and he kidnaps her, bringing Tiffany to his Palace of Ice. We can neither confirm nor deny if the Wintersmith sang a self-affirming ballad while he was constructing the palace, although <laughs> he did sing an excerpt from an opera, from a Discworld <laughs> opera. I think it's Überwald Winter. That's excellent. Which, <laughs> yes. Uh, the line that he sings from it translates to, it got cold again. <laughs> <laughs> That's very appropriate then. Roland and the Feagles head down to the underworld, where they have to fend off monsters that feed on thoughts. After negotiating with the ferryman, Roland finds the sleeping Lady Summer and wakes her with a kiss on the cheek. Together, they escape from the underworld, with Roland using his imaginary sword to fight off the psychic monsters, and they all make it back to the land of the living. Mm -hmm. I do always enjoy the use of imagination as, like, a, an effective defense against things that interact with minds directly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, especially here because of what Roland has been going through recently with his dad being sick and then his aunt's, like, preying on everything. Like... He's obviously going to be confronting a lot of negative thoughts in his own life, because how could you not? Yeah. And he just, like, goes absolutely buck wild fighting these monsters because he has a, he finally has a way to, like, fight back against these things that are just eating at him, but he hasn't been able to do anything about in his real life. In the Ice Palace, Tiffany explains to the Wintersmith that he doesn't understand the core principles of being human which include the capacity to misunderstand the world into making sense, the power of Bafo. And so she kisses him and he melts away. Mm -hmm. Which is bringing back the balance trick that Granny taught her. And if I'm understanding correct, what happens is that she just like transfers the heat of the sun directly into the wintersmith there <laughs> yeah which feels appropriate as her like kind of adopting a little bit of the persona of the summer lady but also about her role and her experience as a witch although like i also melt into nothing when kissed by a pretty girl yeah <laughs> totally fair <laughs> although like 13 is like not no <laughs> but this moment's especially kind of tragic because it's so clear that the Wintersmith wants to be human and he just doesn't get what he's missing. And Tiffany kind of like sympathizes with him, I think, where she understands that he really wants it and understands that he just can't have it. He's just like fundamentally incapable of knowing what it is to be human, despite like regardless of how bad he may want it. It's a motif that occurs a lot throughout the Discworld books is just like the something that could not be human and wasn't experiencing it and being fascinated by like, what mm -hmm. it is to be alive. Yeah. And it's especially a fascinating inverse of the like very common literary trope of people like wanting to be gods or becoming gods in the literal sense that like these godlike entities like death and the wintersmith here get 
a little bit of a glimpse of what it's like to be human and just kind of become enamored with it and want it despite the fact that they're these immortal, all-powerful beings. With the Wintersmith gone and the Summer Lady back, the dance of the seasons can resume, but not before she gives Tiffany one more little taste of her power. A demonstration of how Endless Summer would be at least as horrible and destructive as Eternal Winter. You know, it's equality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like to bring the spell that uh, Granny shows Tiffany with about, you know, transferring heat. One of the lines that she says is, you know, you got to maintain the balance. And so, with Tiffany thoroughly warned to stay away from the Summer Lady's boy toy, <laughs> life can resume. Anagramma has learned the value of boffo. Uh, Granny Weatherwax is spoiling her little kitten. And the Feagles are taking on their own heroic challenge of reading an entire book. <laughs> the only memento that Tiffany has kept of the Wintersmith is his iron nail, which she made into a ring. At the normal Morris dance, she gives that ring to one of the dancers, because just as the winter contains the prospect of summer, so too does the summer hint at the next winter. <laughs> so that was Wintersmith. What'd you think? I really like this book. I was reading um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson at the same time as this. Mm -hmm. And so despite the very like serious and tragic things that happen in this book, it was really nice to have a much lighter read despite <laughs> the seriousness. But like, I think it's great. And especially as somebody who read very tropey, like, like fantasy books when they were a young teenager, this is such a fun and interesting kind of like shift on a lot of those ideas like you know tiffany and the wintersmith don't end up together and tiffany has to realize her own power and it's not necessarily anything super magical or show-stopping like and the fact that i, I really do love the morris dance scene at the end where she kind of like catches a glimpse of the wintersmith in it all it just feels very it, it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside despite the like tragedy and hardness in it a couple of various things that mm -hmm. we sort of skimmed over or didn't have a good place to talk about. And there's a scene where Nanny Og is talking with Tiffany about romance, and she mentions how, in her experience, the boy should be afraid of the girl. That, I think, is an example of Terry Pratchett definitely coming at certain things from a male perspective. I believe that uh, a popular way of summarizing it is boys are afraid that girls will laugh at them, while girls are afraid that boys will murder them. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of depicted in here a little bit, but, like, perhaps it's because this is a children's book, but I don't think this disparity is properly addressed. Yeah, it's definitely, like, we don't dig into a lot of the, like, workings of romance and relationships <laughs> in any of the Discworld books. But that scene where they're actually really talking about relationships and for Tiffany, that's an important discussion to have as a young girl. It definitely feels like, you know, there's some big important like check marks that were missed. On a similar subject, there's also a scene where the Nack McFeekles acquire a romance novel for Tiffany. And mm -hmm. she's just like, this is trash. I just can't stop reading it. <laughs> it was very fun. We all need guilty pleasures. And like, hey, there is nothing wrong with enjoying trash. So mm -hmm. long as like you acknowledge that it is trash. <laughs> and it's like probably also consume a variety of things. Yeah. 
Get a wide range of trash in your diet. <laughs> Getting some recycling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, one fairly major plot detail that like we didn't mention because it didn't actually matter that much is Tiffany, when she inherits the Sever Lady's powers, gets her like symbol of authority, the corticopia. Mm-hmm. It is cool, and like there's some funny scenes with it. I just wish it had been relevant in any way, given how much it factors into the like narrative. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of weird that it's like, oh, okay, she's got to like learn how to use the cornucopia, and then it kind of disappears for a while until she needs to give it back. If I was in charge of adapting this story, I would probably put in a scene like when she's in the Wintersmith's Palace where she has to use it almost like a gun to just like <laughs> food fight some minions or something. That'd be great. <laughs> I do really like the scene with the chickens, though, and the fact that the chickens just come back up through the rest of the book because they don't know how to get rid of all those chickens. <laughs> work. <laughs> work. Uh, one character who was mentioned back in Going Postal makes a great cameo here. Anoya, the goddess of things that get stuck in drawers. <laughs> I mention her primarily because she gets to deliver a really solid line. Sooner or later, every curse is a prayer. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the most common reasons why people pray is because they're afraid of something, right? So to put that line another way, we lash out at the world because we're afraid. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those moments where Discworld is really su- serving some, like, great literary realness. One of those lines that, like, ends up completely out of context. It just floats around and then people attribute to Shakespeare, even though it's clearly not. <laughs> On some level, it feels like there's kind of two distinct stories happening in parallel here. Uh, the plot about the wintersmith and the one about the cottage. Part of me wishes that they could have been... Uh, turned into two distinct books, because I think they could have carried individual stories. But them being one book does give this interesting perspective on the life of a witch as this frenzy of always having too much to do. Mm -hmm. I could also see, and I wouldn't actually want this version of the story, to be clear, Mm -hmm. but I could see a version where Anagramma actually ends up with the Wintersmith. Yeah. Now, that's partly just me wanting the two plot lines to meaningfully intersect because I like a satisfying story structure. But I also feel like they could have an interesting like, romantic dynamic. She would probably love the grandeur and sense of importance that came from being involved with functionally a god. And he would benefit from being together with someone who was into him, but could still stand up for herself. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like if this was another book, Anagramma and maybe uh, Petulia and, I don't know, some other character would show up with Tiffany at the end to, like, fight the bad guy. But it does really feel like Tiffany's just kind of alone through the book Mm -hmm. despite the fact that she's like intersecting with all these other people ultimately it's very internal and isolated of what she's doing and how she needs to resolve the book i think that has been like one of our biggest criticisms of the series as a whole is the Mm -hmm. way that the cast seems to be ensembles but like the climaxes always seem to focus on just one character yeah and especially when you know anagramma and tiffany's relationship is important in this book anagramma does a lot of growing and their relationship changes as a result of that it kind of just disappears when it's not like directly serving the plot anymore 
Although we did see that Anagramma like did have an arc, right? She mm-hmm. clearly learned witchcraft from the other young witches and got a grasp on Bafo and everything. So, mm-hmm. so you know, respect to her for that. Yeah, yeah, and like I really like this book, and I like what it does with Amagram. I like what it does with Anagramma and Tiffany and even a lot of the other characters. And it just feels like there's like a couple potential pieces that are just missing that would have like made it feel a little more unified at the end. Did you have any other thoughts you wanted to go over? This is like completely unimportant to the plot at large and the rest of the book, but I do I'm really listening. like it. <laughs> um, Patchouli gets referenced as uh, just a couple times in here, and they keep calling her the pig witch because she's just very good with taking care of pigs, but that she's grown to be like a very competent and confident witch, even though she's still like a little nervous and just personal interactions that don't have anything to do with pigs, and that, you know, she's got a potential relationship out there, and it just feels like a nice way to flesh out her character a little bit and to show that like she's growing in the background, even though we're not spending a lot of time with her in this book. Yeah, I like Petulia. She's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just feels like it treats her with a lot of sympathy. So for each book, I like to try and find a thesis statement. For this one, I would say that for this one, I'd say it's that life may be a story, but it doesn't have to be a romance. And also that you cannot win someone's heart by assuming you understand what they want. Yeah. That's not quite as unified as some of the other ones that I've been able to find. But, you know, if you've got a better one, leave it in the comments. <laughs> I do think that makes a lot of sense, though, because it's not necessarily like this is a romance book in the traditional sense. Uh, it does have a lot to say about growing up and how your relationships with other people are. And that romance is just a part of all of your other relationships. But if it's not, like, full of communication and understanding and making an effort like it's not really a good romantic relationship oh also probably something that uh, people might bring up if we don't talk about it here is uh, the watercolors and also roland and tiffany sending letters back and forth to each other Mm -hmm. they don't have a romantic relationship either really Mm -hmm. but like tiffany is definitely very jealous when roland mentions looking at another girl's watercolors and also like, has a lot of complex feelings when he sends watercolor paints to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because, like I mentioned earlier, they're obviously going to connect with each other in a way that they're both going to struggle to connect with other kids their age in the village because they both went into the fairy queen's domain and they both have these roles that just give them a power but also isolate them from just, like, the normal people in the village that you know, in each other, they find a sense of commonality and understanding. And it makes sense to like, talk it out, especially with everything else they've got going on in their lives. But especially with like, Tiffany's what 1314 here? You know, she turns 13 during the course of the story. Yeah, so like, she's very young. And it makes sense if it makes sense if romance is not necessarily like what she's looking for and how she's defining her relationship with Roland at this point. Yeah, one other thing I just wanted to touch on. I don't have a fully formed thought on this, but the way that Granny Weatherwax describes balance with like the seesaw metaphor and how the center doesn't move, and that's also kind of true of a wheel. Just like the hub mm-hmm. doesn't move from its position even while the edges go, and mm-hmm. like that also ties into the 
cycle of the seasons and and other things and so just the theme of balance is like connected in a lot of different ways Mm -hmm. yeah i think one thing that this book does really good is that it feels like there are concepts that are like pretty small you know they're not necessarily like these big overarching things but they do pop up in multiple places throughout the book so it feels like it has a good sense of what it's trying to do with those things yeah so we're almost at the end Thank you, as always, Liz, for joining me on this. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks to Willow Carter for our theme music, and to all of our listeners for coming along. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review, sharing it with people. That's always the best way for podcasts to get new audience members is to be spread by word of mouth. Also, feel free to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, a bunch of different places. And, of course, you can join our Discord server just to chat with us directly and hang out with other fun people. Yeah. Oh, and also, this will be kind of old news to anyone listening to this in the future, but congratulations to the death of podcasts for finishing the series. Well done. Yeah, great job. That's a a task. We're right behind you, although (laughs) we obviously are well behind. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we've got a little bit to go still. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon, including this month's recipient of the Patreon shout-out, Dave Gumble. Thanks, Dave. And of course, we like to close out each episode with the fan vote for the favorite footnote. All witches are a bit odd. It's best to get your oddness sorted out early. Next month, we'll be taking a look at making money. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves. <laughs>